Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Brent Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus. I'm also part of the pastoral residency program here at the church. So thank you so much for supporting that program and for welcoming me and my family here. We're in the fourth week of a sermon series called Return to Joy, in which we're walking through Paul's joy-filled letter to the Philippians. And I think this is a really timely series because, like many of you, after this difficult year, year and a half we've been through, I'm asking myself, how can I get more joy in my life? And many of you know that I recently graduated from seminary, and like almost everything else in the world, theological education is changing along with rapid advances in technology. So when we study the Bible today, we can do things with computer software that weren't possible when Andrew went to seminary 10 years ago or when Tom went to seminary um, last century sometime. Um, so things, you know, just, just 20 years ago, there were things that would have taken hours of research to do with an old technology called the book, uh, which we can now do in just a few seconds with a few keyboard strokes. So as we're rendering into this series, and I'm thinking about this question, how can I get more joy in my life? Uh, I did what any fresh seminary graduate trained in the latest state-of-the-art technology would do. I asked Google. And so here's some of what I found when I asked Google how to get more joy. Um, some of it was helpful, like master a challenging activity, or more we time, less me time. I think that's a good one after this year of isolation we've had. Uh, spend more time expressing gratitude, be present, take a break, volunteer, go outside. And I don't know if you've been outside recently, but it's beautiful out there. There are trees and flowers and creeks and ponds and stuff. Go check it out. It'll probably help your joy. So these were pretty helpful. Some of it, though, was, was less helpful. So things like uh, get houseplants. And uh, I'm not against houseplants or anything, but my wife has taken this to a bit of an extreme, and it's starting to look a little bit too much like that picture um, so it's, it's never good when you lose your kids in the bushes in the living room. Uh, but also, not helpful, get in a joyful state of mind. Like, what is that? How do I get more joy? Just get in a joyful state of mind. It seemed a little bit circular to me. Uh, similarly, get happy now or stop worrying. Okay, have you ever told someone to stop worrying and it was actually helpful? If you tell me to stop worrying, I just start worrying that I'm worrying too much. And finally, the most American idea of all on any list I found was this one, buy happiness. If you need more joy in your life, just go buy something and you will be more joyful. Uh, so that, I thought this was, this was not quite so helpful. 
But uh, so joy is something we all need, and we, we all want, we all need it right now today. Um, and while Google admittedly has, you know, a few good ideas, uh, perhaps it would be better to just ask what the Bible has to say. And what better place to start than where we've been in this series in the book of Philippians. And as we've seen, this short letter is overflowing with joy. And it, it's a joy that Paul is so eager to share with his brothers and sisters in Philippi. But remember that it's also, uh, this, is, this letter is written in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Paul is, is in prison as he's writing this. And yet, in four short chapters, Paul uses the words for joy or rejoice 16 times. So he must have had a lot of houseplants in that prison cell with him. But in this incredibly joyful letter, Paul tells the Philippian church how they can have joy too. And it comes in a surprising way, through obedience. And I, you know, most of us probably don't normally associate obedience with joy, but that's what Paul says in our text today. That obedience actually leads to joy. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and we'll see how this works. But before we dive into that text, let's just remind ourselves a little bit of the context because it's really important. In many ways, the heart of the letter is what occurs just before our text. It's the one that, the one that Andrew walked us through last week, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And in that text, Paul encourages unity and generosity in the church by having the same mindset as Jesus, who did not use his status as God's son to his own advantage, but he lowered himself by becoming human. And not just a human, but a servant. And not just a servant, but a crucified servant. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the heart of the letter, the story of Jesus who became human, who died on a cross and was raised to life. This is the gospel here in the book of Philippians. And the gospel leads directly into our text today, which starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of everything Paul has just said about Jesus, who obeyed the Father to the point of death and was raised to life and exalted as Lord of all, what should the Philippian church do? Let's read verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, in light of the gospel, Obey and work out your salvation. What we see in this verse is that obedience is what our salvation demands. Obedience is what our salvation demands. And that leads to a couple of important questions, and we'll take them in turn. First, who is it that we are to obey? Grammatically, in verse 12, it's not clear. Okay? Paul could mean that the Philippians are to obey Paul, specifically his commands up in verses 1 through 5, for humility and generosity and unity. Or it could be his command in verse 14 that we're about to get to about not grumbling and disputing. But whether or not Paul has those specific commands in mind, uh, I, I'm sure that the obedience he's, he's asking for here is tied to the obedience of Jesus back up in the previous section. Did you catch that in verse 8? In being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just like Jesus was obedient to the Father, Paul's calling us as Jesus' followers to, obedient, to be obedient to the Father as well. So we need to clear up a misconception here that sometimes comes up. So is, is, this is the second question. Is, is obedience something that earns our salvation? You know, is, is Paul talking about, about some kind of workspace righteousness here? No. Hey, Paul's not telling people how to be saved. In fact, 
If you read uh, the address of the letter, it's clear that Paul's audience is already saved. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul's audience is already saved. He's not telling them you have to obey in order to be saved. Obedience is not about earning salvation. It's not about getting God to answer our prayers. We don't obey in order to, to score points with God. Um, but as Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And some of us get tripped up on all this, uh, especially if our view of salvation is deficient. Because salvation is not just about getting saved from something. It's also about getting saved for something. We are saved from sin and death for participation with God in his mission for the world. Salvation isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a, it's a get-out-of-jail-and-start-working card. So in everything that we do, we're to work out the implications of our salvation. Um, I'm reminded of, of stories, um, movies, or books where you have a protagonist who's taken out of a, of a kind of a sad and deprived life and, and brought into a new story. And it's a bigger story, it's a, it's a, but it's a better story. So think about uh, Harry Potter, for example. He's He's rescued from underneath the, uh, the staircase at his uncle and aunt's house um, in the sad life that he has, and he's brought into a, a new story and a new mission. Or, or Neo in the Matrix trilogy, who's got this uh, boring life as a computer programmer. Um, not that all computer programmers' lives are boring, but his was. And, uh, and he, uh, he's, but he's, he's kind of rescued into a new mission, a new reality he was unaware of. And, uh, and likewise, Christians find ourselves living in a new reality. And I, wouldn't, I don't want to press any of those analogies too far, uh, but, but we find ourselves living in a new reality that demands a new way of life, a way of life of obedience. Well, the phrase, work out your salvation, is, is a reminder of the task for which God created humanity for in the first place. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. Humans were created to care for God's world, to work the garden, and to bear fruit. They were to do these things alongside God, using their own creativity, as they stewarded the, his world under his rule. So salvation is what enables us to get on with that task. And this is why obedience makes sense. We don't do it just because God says so, but because it's the task for which God created us to work for in the beginning. So when Paul says, uh, obey with fear and trembling, he's, he's not saying obey because God is scary and strict and he's, he's just waiting for you to step out of line so he can zap you. But he's saying, take this work seriously because it's what God created us for and saved us for in the first place. Obedience is what our salvation demands. And obedience is hard, but what we find out next is that obedience is what God actually works among us. Obedience is what God works among us. Let's unpack that. By, uh, by reading on. So starting at the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you to will and to work. So notice here that, that God has graciously given us his Holy Spirit who enables us to obey. But it doesn't say God does it for you. Hey, just because Jesus, uh, God is working uh, in us doesn't mean it suddenly becomes easier to obey. God is working in us, but we need to work with him. Rankin Wilburn, in his book, Union with Christ, uses a metaphor of sailing to describe the Christian life. He says, life with God is not like a motorboat where we are in control of the power and direction, but neither is it like a raft where we just sit back and are carried along. It's like sailing. While we can't control the most important thing, 
the wind that makes us move, that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. We have to draw the sail and catch the wind. And this is why we do spiritual disciplines like reading our Bible or praying, taking time for solitude and silence, practicing generosity and hospitality. These disciplines help us to be aware of what God is saying to us, which helps us to obey. And they also uh, help us to become the kind of people who increasingly desire what God desires and who respond to a given situation in the way that Jesus would respond. And notice also here that God isn't not just enabling us to obey, he's also changing our will so that as we grow in our discipleship with Jesus, we find ourselves increasingly wanting to do the things that he wants and wanting things for the world that God wants for the world. Have you ever experienced that where you uh, maybe surprisingly find yourself wanting what God wants in a given situation? That's the work of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So obedience is what God works among us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and he also gives us community. So we actually work out our obedience as a community. So remember in English, the word you, it can mean you as an individual or you um, as as, as a group, you plural. And so in the original Greek here, when it says it is God who works in you, that's a plural you. And there are some English translations that actually translate this, it is God who works among you. And many New Testament scholars think that's actually a, a better captures what Paul's trying to say here. So yes, God is at work at us, at, in us as individuals, but he's also at work among us as a community. So we actually work out our obedience as a community um, when, we, when we, or our salvation, I should say, as a community when, uh, when we do the, um, the, the one another commands in the New Testament. So we're not meant to be, to be lone wolf Christians, but to be a community that spurs one another on and demonstrates the love of God in front of a watching world. And this is why Paul talks about complaining in the following verse. Let's read verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So think about this. In light of Paul, he's just laid out the gospel. In light of, of, light of that, what are like... Why does he give this command? Of all the things he could say here. In light of the gospel, work out your salvation and obey by doing what? He could say, uh, give your money to the poor. Or he could say, you know, live a sexually pure life and not commit sexual immorality. Or by, by praying more, reading your Bible more, and sharing your faith more. Those are all important things, and Paul does talk about them elsewhere. But here, he focuses on grumbling and disputing specifically because those things are so destructive to community. If we are to obey together, we need to root out the things that drive us apart. And this is a good point to to stop for a minute and apply this text to our lives. Anyone here done any complaining in the last year? (laughs) I know I have, and it, it hasn't done me any good. You know, I feel better for a moment but it hasn't made me more joyful, and I don't think it's making our our church community stronger either. I have to look in the mirror on this one and admit it hasn't been a strong suit for me over the last year. And complaining is such a common part of our cultural language that I bet we're often not even conscious that we're doing it. It might be a good challenge for us to take a day and track how many times we complain. You know, ask your spouse to track it with you. Maybe it'll be good for your marriage or just give you one more thing to complain about. I'm not talking here about sincere expressions of disappointment. Okay, when we're disappointed or hurt by someone, you know, there are lots of reasons for us to have hard conversations with people. And we need to have those for healthy community too. 
But there's a difference between healthy, hard conversations and just complaining. Before we move on, I want to press in a little bit deeper on the word grumbling for a minute. It's a key word here in this text. And if we're listening, if we're reading our Bibles carefully or we're listening carefully, that word should call to mind another biblical story. Can you remember a story about, about a person or a people in the Bible who were saved and then started grumbling right afterwards? This is a reference to Israel in the wilderness after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The same Greek word is used here for grumbling that's used to translate how the Israelites grumbled against their leaders and against God in the wilderness. They did not trust God's ability to provide for them. They complained about the leaders God had given them. And ultimately, they started thinking that maybe slavery in Egypt wasn't so bad after all. So I think part of what Paul is trying to say here when he says don't grumble is remember how destructive this kind of behavior can be. We have an example in our own Bibles. An entire generation missed out on enjoying the fulfillment of God's promises because they were focused on their own difficult circumstances rather than on what God might actually do in, among, and through them. We need to spend less time complaining about our circumstances and more time asking how God is trying to use our circumstances to form us and how he might actually use us in spite of those circumstances. Think again about Paul in his jail cell. If there's ever anybody who's complaining would seem to be justified, you know, wouldn't it be Paul? He's been going around doing what God has called him to do. He's planting churches and sharing the gospel all around the Mediterranean region. And now he finds himself unjustly imprisoned And if you remember what he said in chapter 1, there are even Christians out there who are trying to make life in prison worse for him. How would you react in that situation? And I'd be doing a lot of grumbling. But Paul does not complain that God has been unfair to him. He doesn't complain about those other Christians who are trying to make his life worse. In fact, he says, uh, so long as the gospel is being preached, that's okay with me. He doesn't long for his old life as a Pharisee. He's He's overflowing with joy. It's a joy that he's eager to share with his dear friends in the church in Philippi. Now in the next verse, uh, Paul just continues piling up Old Testament allusions. And they all make the point that obedience is what our neighbor needs. Obedience is what our neighbor needs. So starting back in verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. First Old Testament allusion here is to Abraham. The phrase to be, uh, to be or become blameless is the same phrase used in Genesis 17 when God confirms his covenant with Abraham. Now, blamelessness doesn't mean sinlessness. Uh, Abraham wasn't sinless. He was, uh, he was declared righteous because of his faith and his trust in God's promises. So what, what does blamelessness mean? It refers to conduct with which someone on the outside can find no fault. So there's a consistency between our words and our actions, both as individuals and as a community, that others can see. And when we root out grumbling and disputing from our community, there's an integrity and a unity that's visible and attractive to the world around us. The second allusion is actually a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, which is another reference to Israel's wilderness generation. Paul takes language that originally, uh, uh, about a crooked and twisted generation that originally referred to the faithless Israelite generation in the wilderness, and here he applies it to the cultural context in which the Philippians live. 
And Paul says, in the midst of that corrupt generation, you shine as lights in the world, which is reminiscent of Israel's intended role as a light to the nations. Abraham was told to be a blessing when he entered into Canaan. And Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, which they were mediating between God and the Gentile nations. So both tasks of blessing and of being a priest were meant to draw the surrounding nations to the God of Israel. When Israel acted the way it was supposed to, it shined like lights in the world, and the nations uh, would come and they would worship their God. So that task is now taken up by the church. Our obedience then has a, a missional component to it. It's, it's a blessing to our neighbors like Abraham, and it hopefully leads them to worship our God like the, like the task of Israel. So obedience is what our neighbor needs. And obedience was a huge part of the successful mission of the early church. Whether it was staying in cities to care for plague victims or going to their death in the gladiator arena for refusing to worship other gods, the world was attracted by their obedience and many people became followers of Jesus. I want to illustrate this with a a quick story about my son Caleb. Um, So when he was in kindergarten, he's, he's in second grade now, when he was in kindergarten, he rode the bus every day to and from school and there was a girl on the bus who was always picking on, on kids. So Caleb would come home from school, and he'd tell us about something, you know, some of the mean things she said or did to him on the bus. And we just felt so helpless as parents. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced bullying, but it's actually, it feels almost worse to go through it as a parent than as a kid because you just feel so helpless, you know. Um, like, all I can do is sort of watch it happen and care for them when they go through it. And so I, I wanted to... You know, we, we called the school, and the school didn't really, that didn't really help much. Um, what I really wanted to do was, you know, get on that bus and, like, give this kid a piece of my mind uh, to protect my son. But all we could really do was tell him that uh, Jesus tells us to treat others the way that we want to be treated. But to be honest, that felt like a really inadequate response. I didn't have a lot of faith in that response at the time. But, but Caleb, he, uh, he came up with an idea, and so he drew her a picture and he gave it to her one day, uh, one morning on the bus. And it didn't change everything, but she did start being a little bit nicer to him. I had wanted to storm the bus to defend my kid, but it was actually his act of obedience, of treating someone else the way that he would want to be treated, that made the difference. His neighbor on the bus needed his obedience, and our neighbors in our workplace, or our city, and our world, they need our obedience too. Finally, Paul closes this section of the letter by showing that obedience leads to joy. Paul has said, he's laid out the gospel and he said, work out your salvation for it is God who works among you. He says, don't complain so you can shine as lights in the world. And then picking up in verse 16, shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm about, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The Philippians' obedience here is first uh, directly connected to Paul's joy. Notice his uh, his pride in their behalf in verse 16, and then to their mutual rejoicing in verses 17 through 18. The Greek word for rejoice is actually used four times in the last two verses. In some English translations, like the ESV I'm using this morning, they change two of those to the word be glad, which I, I think they do to avoid redundancy. Uh, but, but others, I think, do a little bit better job of capturing uh, the original. So the, the NASB, for example, 
says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I rejoice and share my joy. You should rejoice and share your joy. That's a lot of joy coming from a prison cell. And it all starts, perhaps surprisingly, with obedience. First Jesus' obedience, then Paul's, and then theirs. So if you're like me and you're looking for joy right now, the answer is not found in houseplants. It's not something that we can just uh, make happen by getting in a joyful state of mind. It's not something that we can buy on Amazon. Joy comes when we live out our salvation by following Jesus. It comes when, by obeying, we become the kind of community that God always intended for us to be. A community that shines as lights in a dark and darkening world. It comes when, like Paul, we follow Jesus to a dark and lonely prison cell. Or when we draw a picture for a bully. So let's ask ourselves, where is God calling us to be obedient this week? Maybe it's treating someone the way that you would want to be treated at work or at school or at church. Maybe it's making a sacrifice for a family member or a neighbor. Maybe like Jesus, God is calling you to use a position of influence or status, not for yourself, but for others. Or maybe we just need to stop complaining. Obedience is not always easy or comfortable, but in the end, it leads to joy. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our commitment to Jesus is by regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and celebrating the Lord's, Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we actually do obey together. We do that together o- obedience that we talked about this morning. So uh, you can go ahead and grab the elements while I read this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read from, from 1 Corinthians 11 to prepare our hearts for, the, for communion. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning we remember your body broken for us. And we know that we, your church body, are broken too. We confess this morning that so often we want to do things our way instead of your way. Our own selfishness and conceit gets in the way of joy. We've looked out for our own interests instead of others. We've grumbled and disputed rather than trusting in your promises. We also remember your blood poured out for us, blood by which we are reconciled and called sons and daughters of God. Help us to live out that calling by faith and obedience, to become what you have already proclaimed us to be, to shine as lights in front of a watching world, and to show by the life that we live together that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. The music team will continue to lead us in worship, and you may partake of the elements when you're ready.